Welcome to Cards Chat, the friendliest poker podcast in town from the world's number one poker community. Hey everyone, I am your host, Robbie Straczynski. Thank you so much for joining us on episode number 100 of Cards Chat, the friendliest poker podcast in town. For our very special 100th episode, we have a very special guest. It's a man who needs no introduction, but I'm going to give him one anyway. Anyone who's ever heard of poker knows who he is. He's a poker hall of famer whose accomplishments at the felt really do speak for themselves, placing him on the Mount Rushmore of our industry. Away from the felt, the person you'll meet if you really get to know him is as kind and generous as they come, both with his resources and with his time. He's not only our preeminent poker ambassador, but he's also just a damn nice guy. Daniel Grado, welcome to the Cards Chat Podcast. Well, thanks for having me once again. <laughs> once again, for the 100th episode, take do. I want to point this out. So for those that don't know, Robbie, you know, we set up a situation. He came to my house. You know, met my wife. We did two hours. I answered every single one of your questions. We got through stacks of papers. We got through all of them. Robbie, however, forgot to do one key thing. What did you do, Robbie? I did not toggle <laughs> the audio settings correctly. So there was no sound. We there was no hours. sound. We're going to try to take the. <laughs> okay, now that I have been wonderful um, shade of crimson, that is the truth. And I will say it was it was very cool being in your home. It's a wonderful. How long have you lived there in that home, actually? I think it was a. Oh man, a good question. Uh, say two thousand. I don't know. What was it? When did we buy this dang house? I'm trying to think. What I was married before. <laughs> oh, <my laughs> was, like, I don't know. I guess well, two thousand eight, something like that. So and, and you, it used to belong to another very famous poker player, I believe. Yes, I bought this house from Jennifer. It looked completely different than this. I had it completely remodeled. But, you know, Jennifer, when I first moved to Vegas, the first thing I did was I, I rented a budget suites place. And the first house that I rented was her place and another house. And then I was like, okay. So she moved around. I just kept buying her house wherever she went. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Well, we'll talk about uh, Jennifer a little bit in this show. Uh, technically, you know all of the questions. We'll try to still make it interesting for you for this next hour. It's a slimmed down version of the two-hour one, but you're going to get all of the leanness, cut out all the fat, uh, folks. So um, so uh, we always ask our, our guests one question. There'll be very few questions from me. It's all about uh, the audience asking their questions. But one question we always ask all of our guests uh, is, who is the friendliest poker player that you've ever competed against? Yep, top of my head, and I said this before, but it really is like I have time to think about it. And there are like a really like a good group of really nice guys. But the one that is the most consistently nice, as far as I was concerned, is Andrew Lichtenberger, who you guys know as Lucky Chewy. He went through his little phase where he was kind of a yogi, and um, you know he was had the long hair. He wrote a book called Yogi and Poker and stuff like that. But he's he, you know, some people like they're nice, but it feels like it's inauthentic. Like I don't really know that I trust that this guy is really, or is he just putting on a thing? With Lucky Chewy, you can just sense that it's genuine. Like, this is just who he is. You know, he's yeah. just a really, really good guy. Absolutely. And confirmed, only having met him once, he was just, you know, the nicest. No barriers or anything. Instantly, his attention is all on you. So uh, that's pretty cool. So uh, hopefully I get to play poker against him someday as well. Um, well, as we mentioned, guys, again, this is an episode all about you. You know, I didn't prepare too many questions of my own, but we had asked and dozens and dozens and dozens of questions uh, came in from, you know, near and far, all corners of the world, members of the Cards Chat community. So thank you all very much for submitting them. We will try to get through as many as we possibly can. And we will start with Mr. Pokerverse. 
wants to know, Daniel, who were some of the most influential people that helped you with your success in poker, but also in life? Great question right off the bat. And we sort of touched on, uh, you know, first and foremost, me getting situated in Las Vegas, house to house. And that was Jennifer Harmon. But it was you know, it was a combination of both things, as you said, from the poker side. You know, we met uh, because at, at the time she was dating Todd Brunson and I played the satellite. I didn't have much money back then. I played a little satellite to try to play in one of the World Series of Poker events. Um, and I got three handed with Todd Brunson and Mike Mattiso. And they said, you want to save $500 chip? I said, sure. Well, I ended up beating Todd heads up. He threw me the chip and said, can I take a piece of you tomorrow? I wasn't going to play. It's $2,000. My bankroll's 2800 That's not a good decision. But Mr. Brunson said, do it. So I had, you know, I was like, maybe I get a little bit of faith. First World Series of Poker event I played, I make the final table. And Todd was out drinking the night before. And he says to Jennifer, he's like, Jennifer, can you go sweat that uh, Daniel, Niagara, Nagaru, whatever? Can you just make sure that he doesn't run off with my money? So she came and swept me at the final table. And, you know, slowly but surely, we got down to heads up. And I remember the last hand was an absolute flip, coin flip as you can get. And I saw the rubber card was like a black six. Wasn't sure if that was good for me or not. But I looked up in the crowd and I saw Jennifer go like this. And I knew that I'd won. And then literally from that point on, you know, we had drinks every night at the horseshoe back in the day. We we're just drinking. We, you know, we developed a friendship. And then from the poker perspective, you know, she used to let me sweater when she was playing these big games, 1,500, 3,000, whatever. She'd be playing three-handed with Elia Lezra and David Gray. And I'd be licking my chops. Obviously, I can't play in this game. But, you know, just learning how they play and, you know, how she plays against them and stuff like that sort of gave me a little footing. She also was always there for me whenever I did really dumb 20-something stuff, right? Mm -hmm. No, I'm like, I'm seeing this 15, 3,000 game. We went to dinner, had a nice, you know, big meal, whatever, had some drinks. I got 30,000 in my name. The limits are 1,500, 3,000. It's probably not enough. <laughs> but I said, you know what? Got to give it the old college try. So I left that session without the 30,000 and uh -huh. I started all over again, which happened, you know, here and there. Uh-huh. How close are you with Jennifer today, all these years later? Mm -hmm. Well, Jennifer was in my um, in my wedding, you know. Oh, there you go. She was in the wedding. We don't see each other much anymore. Like, so Jennifer, for those that don't know, she was very, very high risk because she's had two kidney transplants. And right. those who have kidney transplants, when, when it comes to COVID, had a 28% rate of death, which is incredibly high. Like, you know, wow. that's that's nothing like what, you know, the average person deals with. It's very minor. Mm -hmm. But for her, it was very high risk. So she, does, she wasn't out very much. She did right. she did come and play one to 50K this year. And she was like, you know all protected out there. Sure. So. Well, of course we wish her well and only uh, the best of health. Uh, NKGB13 wants to know, Daniel, do you see having a poker mindset helping you in other parts of your life, like sports or personally or in business? Yeah. So there was a book a long time ago written by a guy named Greg Dinkin called The Poker MBA. And I really enjoyed it because it's a business book, but it's a business book using poker principles. So each chapter is, you know, the art of bluffing the art of bluffing or the art of negotiation, you know, like how much do you sell a, a hand for, you know, how much, what, what this player, this person will pay 57% of pot. This person will give up 54% of their company and just trying to feel them out and stuff like that. So there's a lot of like crossover between the two. So mostly I think, you know, poker mindset and being able to play poker has helped me in a lot of ways, but there's also downsides too, right? Cause one of the things that you, really focus on being good at when you play poker is judging people just across the board. Like if you sit down at my table, Robbie, I got to look at you. I got to get a sense. Is this guy a bluffer? Is this guy do this? What kind of person are you? 
So I'm going to make these judgments with very limited information. Well, you know, in your regular life, that can that can be problematic. You know, if you're, if right. you're doing that, if you're judging everyone around you, like specifically in relationship, you know, with your wife or things like that, you know, that can be problematic. The other thing, the other downside too is for the most part, when you play poker, you deal with such ups and downs that, you know, you're really striving to be emotionally stable and in control, which means you can be out of touch. Your mind and heart can be out of touch with things like things may happen and you just don't feel the emotion that is natural. And I remember feeling that as a teenager, uh, when, how I reacted to my dog that I loved and I just sort of didn't have a reaction, which was, you know, different. Uh, Andy Reyes wants to know, we're going to do a lot of Gift, uh, gear shifting like we do at the felt as well. You got to be on, with, on your toes. Plus, you, you may have heard these questions before. Um, Andy Reyes wants to know, what is the worst bad beat you've ever had? Uh, what did it cost you? And what did you learn from that experience? So what's interesting about the bad beat is that it's not really that bad of beat. You know, it was a hand in 2000. I think it was the year Carlos Mortensen won the main event with 12 players left. I was chip leader and the hand played out where you know, five and 10,000 blinds, Carlos raised under the gun to 35,000 because that it was because it was the year 2000, right? And that's what people did. Yep. And this guy, Henry Nowakowski, he three bet under the gun plus two to 150,000 because again, it was 2003. And I hadn't had aces the entire tournament. I wasn't getting a lot of big hands. And I'm in the big blind now with ace king and it's 150 to me. So I decided to make it 350 with the intention of folding if Carlos goes all in because he was second in chip. So I'm like, I can go 350 if he moves in, it's going to be aces or kings. And then I'm obviously committed to call against Henry, who was a little bit shorter than that. So I do it. Um, Carlos folds pocket nines correctly. And this guy, Henry, just went all in with sixes, which is not a good play, right? The flop came jack 10, turn blank, river blank. If I hit one of those cards, you know, ace, king, queen, I'm all of a sudden, you know, even bigger chip leader. But I learned a lot from it. I learned a lot from it from the difference of being a victim and being responsible. Victim version is what an idiot. Why would he do something so stupid with my chips when he made such a clear error, right? Responsible is it's on me to know what people are capable of and what they're willing to do and, and stuff like that. So it's a spot where, you know, going back, knowing what I know now, I would just throw the ace king in the muck. Really right. just get rid of it. There's no reason. I mean, I'm doing fine. I, I was, my small ball approach was working really, really well. I didn't need to play this big pot. Right. And well, you know, you're not into regret, obviously, but you finished uh, 11th place and had things worked out differently, obviously have a massive shot at becoming, you know, uh, 2000 or whatever it was, 2001 main event champion. And that's not an accolade that you do have. Do you kind of wish you had it? The truth is, I don't know that if I would have won back, I don't know that I was ready to win back. You know, yeah. who knows where my life would have gone had I won that thing. Like, obviously it's a great accomplishment, as you said, but like, I'm, you sort of touched on regret a little bit and how I don't live there. And the reason is, is my life is, is like my dream life right now, right? So everything I've done, if I change any one of those things, you know, potentially could lead to a life maybe better, but I don't know how, because my life is exactly how I want it, but right. you never know, right? So I would look back at things that I've done in the past and say to myself, I don't regret it, but if I was in the same position, you know, then I wouldn't do the same thing. Like I would right. do things differently given the opportunity. Having said that, I don't regret, I don't really regret mistakes I've made because I look at mistakes as opportunities for a breakthrough, you know, like any breakdowns you have in life or an opportunity to really get introspective, learn more about yourself and figure out, you know, how, you know, how to deal with those situations, whether it's a poker hand or whether it's just life. 
Yeah, absolutely. Always something uh, to be learned from from errors and mistakes. Well, I'm sort of on that note a little bit. Propane Goat uh, says that we're all aware that the most trivial decision or event could sometimes lead us down a particular path in life. Was there any such turning point uh, in your life, like a specific thing that happened that pushed your life in one direction or another that or, or had it done so, like had you gone through the other sliding doors, you may, ne- may not ever have gotten involved in poker. Yeah, so there was a couple points in my life. Obviously, as I mentioned, you know, as a teenager in my early 20s, I would go broke. That was common. It wasn't like today where you could play 20 online screens of small stakes and grind out a bankroll, you know. Everyone was playing for the most part. If you didn't have money going in, you know, you're, you're building a bankroll with short funds. So there was probably two moments. Um, but I'll go with, like, I guess the first one, which was, you know, my first trip to Las Vegas, right? Um, I came in there 21 years old, like I'm the greatest, I'm the best period. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause I came from Toronto and I was, I was pounding people, all that kind of stuff. So I sit in this game and I'm playing like 24 hours, you know, now it's 3am I'm playing seven handed bunch of locals and whatnot. And I finally lose my last chips. I'm, I'm broke. So I go to the bathroom, wash up a little bit, a couple minutes tops. I come back out. They're all gone. The game is over. So I was like, oh boy. It was the first moment I I realized like, wow, I was the sucker here. You know, I was the big fish in Toronto, but in this game, I was the sucker. And I remembered every single one of their faces vividly. And like, I remember one guy, I called him Hawaiian Bill. Well, that's what they called him. And he was like like a local pro, whatever, you know? And I remember hating him because, um, you know, he was three betting me and doing all these things that, you know, ah, they don't do to me in Toronto. And then I ended up growing to play with him more, you know, when I started to play regularly and I really like looked up to him, you know, I learned how to like be a pro a little bit from him. I've throughout my career, I was always, even at a very young age, I would always look at professionals that were doing it for a living and learn something, you know, and just like not idolize in any way, but just like admire and be like, wow, look at that. That's great what they do. So let me do, I would even do this. Sometimes for like an entire week, I would stack my chips like they do, same manner, same everything. Like I would try to get into their heads and like sort of understand how they think. And I did it in every way, mimicking and mocking people or whatever, not mocking, but mimicking. (laughs) Mocking is another thing that I do. Yeah. Right. That would be, uh, that seems like a very genuinely positive approach. You know, good things can come from approaching things and people in that way. Um, Nafor asks an interesting question. Uh, You're almost the same height as the other Daniel, Daniel Craig, who's now retiring as James Bond. You've already grown to show some muscle. So if you were if you were to be asked to play the next Bond in Casino Royale, is that something you'd be up for? I love I want to listen when I was a teenager, when I was young, that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be an actor and stuff like that. Whether James Bond is the role for me, I don't think so. But uh, I wouldn't say no. Like if they're like, hey, we're going to give you this money to be like, actually, I don't know. Maybe I would say no because I don't know that I'd be prepared to play a James Bond. That's a tough one. You know, I don't feel like I'm the guy for James, but there's other characters I'd play. I'd play Worm, you know, okay. Rounders. Sure. <laughs> well, we know who your Bond girl would be. She's uh, living with you, right? That's for sure. There you go. Uh, Nata777 uh, wants to know, and this is, you know, we're on the heels of almost uh, clinching bracelet number seven uh, last night. Hopefully it'll come your way uh, when the time is right. What would you prefer, a bracelet as a physical item on your hand or in the form of an NFT? Okay, so those of you that are NFT lovers, you do you, right? Respect. 
they don't make a lot of sense to me in terms of things. Cause like, I look at it this way, you have this picture of a thing, right? Guess what? I can take a screenshot of it, put it on my phone. And now I got it too. And if I enjoy looking at it, it's mine. I have the same view of like art, you know, like the Mona Lisa. If that, if you love the Mona Lisa and thought it was beautiful, I would find it silly to spend $10 million to buy the original when I can buy a copy for at, at Costco's for $2. And if it's about the art, see, here's the thing. If it's about the beauty and it's about what it elicits for you, then it being original should have no bearing. Right. It being original is all about ego, really. And it's about stature, you know, like so many people that, you know, because this happened, there was a guy in Europe who was selling fakes and these mm -hmm. people, they love their painting. They were super thrilled. They had this painting, da, 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 da. And as soon as they found out it was fake, they don't like it anymore. Like, it's the same painting. You know, the only difference is, you know, you got swindled out of money. But if you were buying this specifically for yourself, then how, what's the difference? It it's only matters if you're actually in the business of trying to sell and resell. Watches, too. Like, I see guys with watches that are, you know, $300. And I'm like, wow, that's a really cool watch. Then I see guys with like $150,000 watches. And I'm like, this $300 watch is way cooler than that one. I don't get it. I don't get why that like, I, I mean, I don't get why you'd have, I mean, okay, but again, this is the thing, like everyone has their own thing that they like. I like some shoes that are funky, some Louboutins or whatever. Everyone has their own thing. For me, right. this watch, right? This watch cost me a couple hundred Apple watch. This thing can text. I can voice text. I can read messages. I can check my heart rate, all that kind of stuff. Your $150,000 watch tells shitty time. Right. Like not comparable for me. I'm all about, all about practical and logical there. For sure. And with regard to the, not just having the bracelet specifically, that question, uh, you know, one person who's been known to sort of give away his bracelets to different people, Phil Helmuth, you've got yours sitting on the pedestal over there. So I guess, uh, you know, they definitely have that meaning for you. NFT doesn't have necessarily that same uh, feeling of possession for you. Um, you're wearing a different patch these days. Demi Barr asks, why did you leave PokerStars in an, as an ambassador uh, and move over to GG? So right around that time, I think I was with PokerStars for about 12 years, right? And I was transitioning into a new life with my wife, right? I was about to get married. And, you know, we, I was planning on really just kind of like staying home. You know, we're, do, we're good financially. And in addition to that, listen, after 12 years, when you're with the same company, things can sometimes become a little stagnant. You know, I'd go to Bahamas. I'd go to Monte Carlo. I'd go to Barcelona. Like that was just sort of the contract, if you will, right? And, um, you know, things got sort of like a little bit repetitive, I think, for both of us. Like I think, you know... It made sense for both. And I wasn't planning at all on signing with a new site. I was just oh, okay. here. I, I didn't have any notions of like, I'm going to go somewhere else. However, fast forward a few months later, and I did this World Series of staking thing for, for fun. I thought people would enjoy having a piece of me. And when we did it, we had so much, we had so many people, they crashed the site. So then we tried to put it up the next day and we had this huge kerfuffle with overselling it. We sold like 1.8 million in seven minutes. I, I remember like a campaign manager for a politician said, this might be like the largest fundraising event that's ever happened in seven minutes, like, you know, $2 million worth. Right. So we had to rectify the situation. And it was actually the people at GG who reached out and says, we can help you with this because mm -hmm. we already have sort of a staking platform built in. So I was like, well, listen, we need the help. There was no, I think from their perspective, maybe, you know, creating a relationship was in their mind. I ended up meeting with the, um, the head guy, you know, he came here, he was sitting right at this table and we chatted well, we we're talking about the staking thing, you know, maybe we can help them with that or whatever. And then sort of the idea about GG poker, you know, whether or not we had a connection there. And I said, frankly, I'm not really looking to do that right now. But then I looked at the software and I was blown away. Like this software, the software on its own is the best poker software I've ever seen in my life. So engaging, 
so personal, so fun, just like genuinely fun with the sound effect. It's just, in my opinion, and I think most people's opinion, since it is so popular now, the best software. So they had the software, they have the product, right? I believe in the product. It's the best product, right? What they didn't have was marketing. They didn't have a marketing arm. So I am a marketing arm, right? I have reach, I have social media and stuff like that. So I thought, you know what, we fun maybe to see if we can grow GG to be a competitor of of stars, just Uh to be a competitor, you know? In a few years, maybe. Uh-huh. I didn't think it would happen as quickly as it did, where GG Poker would now be the prominent brand in online poker and uh-huh. have the most traffic and you know, you know, be host to the World Series of Poker Bracelet events and stuff like that. So it all happened faster than I could have ever dreamed. And I'm not taking all the credit for it. Obviously, it's the software itself, but I think that I definitely helped to, you know, take a company. Because here's the thing: like when I talk about something, I have a reach. People seem to listen. So we saw um, you know migration if you will we put people in the right place you know within yep. the company in the, in the marketing perspective so you know now it's uh it's a behemoth again you know now yep. I'm, it's great yeah super happy but certainly a well-oiled machine and just sort of speaking to that uh integrity again you know some folks uh, in this world may be jaded and say oh no he's a gg ambassador he's being paid to say these things and especially hearing your origin story and your genuine appreciation for the product and like you said you don't need anything from them. You just thought it'd be fun. It's, uh, you know, you clearly do think very highly. But you know what's important too? I think like if you ask people who are not GG reps or anything like that, what the best software is, mm. they will tell you it's GG poker. Like even people that rep other sites and stuff, they know, like it's, it's, it, it people know now that GG poker is the best software. It's not, it's not just me, you know, probably, you know, it's probably like you said, part of my job is to promote things, but I will only speak to things that I actually genuinely believe and, I, and, I, and the software and the playing experience is better than anywhere I, I could imagine. There you go. David McDonald uh, is asking after playing Doug Hulk heads up and really studying your game, working with solvers, you repeatedly said that you would smash Phil Helmuth heads up because you would use this GTO style to overcome his leaks and flaws. Do you feel like you followed through with that when playing against Phil and David also adds, I noticed that there weren't many spots that you easily could have exploited his play, but didn't seem to follow through with it. Couldn't disagree more with that because I did mm. not employ a GTO strategy against Phil. Mm-hmm. I was playing completely exploitative because he doesn't play a standard style. He limps a lot. And if you look at each one of the matches, when we were deep stacked, I was ahead significantly in all three. The first one, I had him down to like 97 to three. But here's the thing. These heads up sit and goes. You know, like a good player against an okay player, that's like 60-40 tops is what you can expect because the blinds do go up. But if we play deep stack in the same kind of format as I did with poke where we played 25,000 hands at the same stakes, then absolutely I don't think Phil could ever win. I don't mean like if we played a 25,000 sample, I would lay massive price over 25,000 hands that he couldn't beat me because, you know, it's, you know, his situation lost. So, so yeah, you know, listen, I didn't win. But again, like I said, you know, variance played a role in the later stages. And uh, there were areas where I could have exploited him more, for sure, in terms of like, uh, you know, the trashy three bets with and stuff like that. But I felt like, you know, my system was working. I was building chips every single time. Yep. I didn't need to I didn't need to play his game. You know, I could just play mine and it was better because fundamentally, that's not his strength. Like the mm-hmm. fundamentals of poker are not his strength. Like if you look at quote unquote solvers, or you look at like correct play, like that's not how he does his thing. He does his thing his own way. And, you know, yeah. So anyway, 
It's yeah. the white magic. Sure, of course. There you go. Uh, Matt Ryder uh, says as follows. Hey, Daniel, the world's gone topsy-turvy the past few years. COVID knocked this for a loop. U.S. politics drive every news cycle. Immigration is a hot-button issue like never before. You are the son of immigrants to Canada. In today's political climate, that seems a pretty tough way to start out. Yet you achieved the dream and became a household name in the United States and elsewhere. What advice do you give to Canadian children of newly immigrated families looking to make it big in this crazy world? Okay, so first of all, I reject the idea that it was difficult. You know, I was a white kid in Canada who had European parents. It's Canada. Can yeah. Toronto is the most multicultural city in the entire world. Like I would be in class with 35 students and there's like 30 countries represented, you know? So it's a melting pot. So there was no real disadvantages inherently in that at all, frankly. Um, but having said that, I think like, it's funny be, that this question comes up because I sort of tweeted something this morning that was kind of an epiphany. Oh, you know, you know, we talk about privilege, people talk about privilege. And I think that the number one most prominent element of privilege, which I, I would define as something that you're born with, that you had nothing to do with, right, mm -hmm. is where you were born. Okay. Mm -hmm. Imagine being born in like a third world country like Africa, where people are starving, don't have access to water. Imagine what right. your how differently your life would look. Imagine being born in North Korea, where, you know, your rights are limited and, you know, you're under an authoritarian regime. So, you know, just being born in a free country where you're allowed to be you know, worship who you like, be uh, openly gay, whatever the case may be, you have like a lot of opportunity that you may not have otherwise. And I think like, it isn't like, you know, I listen, you, you're better off being born in Chicago than you are in Pyongyang, yep. you know, which is what I said. So, so what I would say is this, I would say like, instead of focusing on all the reasons why you can't do something mm. or all the negative disadvantages that you have in being victim to your circumstance, stand in power right? Mm. Stand responsible for everything and every decision that you make. I'm going to tell this one quick story because it was so poignant to me. Oh, sure. Well, yeah, I'll tell it really, really quickly. So just to give you an example, like of events and situations are neutral until you give them meaning. Mm. There were two different mothers and they both lost their teenage son to a drunk driver. Okay. The first mother was distraught, naturally, very, you know, depressed, saddened, started drinking, doing drugs. Who could blame her? You lose right. your son. You couldn't even empathize. I don't even understand what that would feel like, you know, but she had other children and a husband and it was, you know, a year later, two years later, and she was just detached, you know, she was unavailable. She just stayed in that depression. The other mother had the same thing happen to her with the son dying and she grieved as any mother would. But when she was done her grieving, she chose to make a difference. And she started, she started a company. She started a thing called mothers against drunk driving, mad. Mm. So that other parents wouldn't have to go through this. So the event were the events were neutral, but in one case, the event itself just absolutely destroyed one woman. And in you know another person's case, it you know they they used it as a springboard you know to to move on and, and be bigger and better. So so rather than focus on your circumstance and all the reasons that you can't accomplish something, um, you know focus on the fact that like listen, there's plenty of other people in your shoes that have succeeded wherever you're from you know, wherever you are, there's always success stories like Oprah Winfrey or others who, you know, had very little and was able to build a, you know, something big. It's a very powerful answer. And also just, you know, in general, an outlook on life. It's a great one. Guys, listen to that, uh, you know, couple minutes uh, story one more time after you're done. Uh, Night Stalker wants to know, as much as you had an extremely successful career at poker, do you believe that you could have followed a different path in life other than poker and still be successful? 
I do. Yeah. When I was young, as I sort of touched on earlier, you know, I was into acting. I was into writing. I wrote a, I wrote a script when I was in the fifth grade that won like an award in my, in, in Ontario or in Toronto, it was called the lost army. It was a little take on Rambo kind of thing going back and his boys were left there and, you know, they were in prison camps and he, dun, 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 you know, he, he went, went back to get them out single-handedly because, you yeah. know, that's the way the movies were back then. Um, but writing uh, television work, like being a TV personality, whether it be some kind of like host of a show, whether it be acting itself, like I could see myself because I've always been very comfortable on camera, which is an advantage in poker as well, especially because sure. the majority of the big poker I play is on camera and I'm comfortable. Yeah. Not everyone is knowing that there's a camera in their face at all times. So, yeah, some something in that world, I absolutely think. And here's the thing, too. I think I said this the last time, you know, when you're a poker player. Um, you have to be incredibly confident that you're better than other people. You have to be cre- incredibly confident in yourself. Otherwise, you wouldn't even try to assume that you're better at a game than other people, that you're going to risk all your money on it, right? So it requires this level of confidence. And then when you succeed, a byproduct of that can be what's called the, you know, the Dunning-Kruger effect, where you think because you did it at poker and you're smart at poker, that you like know everything about everything. And I'm a victim to that too, in some cases too, where you feel like, oh, there's a problem over here. I can probably solve that. You're not always right or whatever, but as poker players, we have inflated sense of confidence. The ones that are successful simply because they were able to succeed when 95, 97% of people are not right. So that can lead to some, uh, you know, but, but generally too, like I do feel like in a lot of areas, a lot of different things that I could be above average, you know, I think I'm above average intelligence and I could do a lot of stuff, man. (laughs) <laughs> it's always good to have that sort of confidence. Um, Ritz18 uh, says, I once thought about becoming a professional poker player, but I gave up on the idea for a few reasons, and one of them was age. Do you think age is a key factor in starting a professional poker career? I can see where you're coming from, and I get it, but I think you're also ignoring the inherent advantages of age right, and wisdom. So when you're typically like a younger player starting out, you don't have any money. <laughs> like if you're 18, 19, sure. you're like, sure, I want to play poker, but you don't have money, you know? Whereas if you are, you know, 50, I would imagine that you've done okay and that you've got a job or whatever. So you have sure. the luxury of having a starting bankroll where you can actually do this. You can do it very smartly where you can, you know, keep your job, play poker as a part-time thing, start to track, very important to track how much money you're making per hour or whatever. And then after a year or so, see if it's feasible to quit your job and just transition over. So you have that ability to do that because you're already in the workforce, right? The one thing, obviously, and I just think this is more what he's touching on is the bigger advantage young per, young people have is they're more of a sponge, right? You right. know, the studies show that when you're younger, you know, you dissect, you know, you download information. Having said that, you know, it's not impossible at any age with some hard work to, to learn. And, and again, I think I touched on this in the last one was um, if you're playing live poker, you know, you don't need to be, you just do not need to be well studied with solvers. If you're going to play online, you're a young player coming up, that's probably essential to have an understanding of game theory and how it all works. But if you're like 50 and you plan on playing in like local casino games and things like that, then the idea of like adhering to game theory is actually foolish, period. Acid Burn FX has a creative question for you. If you were in a high-speed chase, you're driving that uh, wonderful red Tesla with the D-Negs license plate, what song would you want blaring on the radio and why? If I was in a chase? High-speed chase. I think there's only one song that makes sense. You know, I'm trying to get away, and if you get pumped up, and who's chasing me? 
Fuck the police coming straight from the underground. A young fella got it bad because I'm brown and not the other color. So police think they have the authority to kill a minority. NWA. Absolutely. There you go. (laughs) That's that's the top of the playlist. All right. Uh, Full clock uh, wants to know, can you start playing poker with zero money and end up becoming a professional? It is possible. I remember years ago, Chris Ferguson did like a whole year where he only played free rolls and was trying to get to $10,000. I don't think he did it in a year. But um, it's certainly possible, but it's not something I would suggest is worthwhile, right? Mm-hmm. It just doesn't make a lot of sense because, you know, you're going to make such little money over such – and it would take so many hours and years, if you will, to just get a bankroll to play one penny, two penny, which, again, would take years to get to anything meaningful where you could support yourself. So, yeah, sure, as a starting point, you know, learning learning the game, free rolls can be val- of value, but if you really want to take it seriously – just if you'd only focused on free rolls, you're going to be wasting three, four years of your life mm. um, in a spot where you could have been making money the entire time. Right. Okay. Uh, Jay Fofla has this question for you. What is it like to know that you've got a legion of admirers who look up to you? So, yeah, that's a tough question too, because, you know, listen, I like sharing my thoughts, you know, and of course on Twitter, you know, anytime you share something that's not poker, you get, you know, you're Canadian, stick the, stick the, stick the poker, or you get, you know, whatever, stick the poker. You don't know nothing like that as though, you know, the bartender who's telling me to stick the poker and I don't <laughs> tell him like, how about stick to serving drinks instead sure. of like, your whole feed being like all this kind of stuff. Um, so in one sense, it's, it's, it's nice to know that like people appreciate you and you know what you've accomplished and they feel like they, you know, they have, they, they know you, it's nice having a following in that regard, but it does come with drawbacks as well that I'm, for me, they're actually fine because I don't mind. But like, you're always going to have haters. Like I, one of my favorite sayings was something to the effect of, in order to avoid criticism, say nothing, do nothing, and be nothing. If I lived my life in such a way where everyone liked me, I would feel like I'm not doing it right. I really do. Like the people who don't like me or whatever, the truth is I probably wouldn't want to be their friend anyway. There you go. <laughs> like, if you don't get me, you don't like me, you're not easy going in that regard. And you're super angry and intense and upset about every little thing. Like I'm not your cup of tea, but you wouldn't be either. You sound like you'd be a wet blanket at a party. And I don't want, I'm not interested if, if, you know, people looking for reasons to be angry all the time. Got it. Well, here's one from me. I didn't ask you last time. So I'm curious to hear the answer. Um, you get to meet a lot of pretty high up celebrities in the mainstream, you know, actors and sports stars and stuff like that. Whether you're, um, I don't know, personally affected or starstruck or not is sort of immaterial. My question is more, you know, what sort of questions do you ask them? What are you interested to learn about people who have that sort of also like mega reach and influence and things like that? So I'm the worst at that. And it was a real sort of breakthrough that, I'll explain that 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 happened for me. Thanks. I did this course probably 10 years ago now called Choice Center, which is a it's like emotional intelligence workshop, which is about, you know, digging deep, figuring out what holds you back, what sort of self-limiting beliefs you have, and then equipping you to like, you know, break through them to the other side. And I remember the lady who founded it, we're still friends. Her name is Robin Williams. And I remember not too long ago, you know, I mentioned that like I've always felt standoffish. Like I just don't want to bother them. You know what I mean? Like, I'm like, oh, I see big celebrities. I don't want to be, I'm not like Helmuth who like goes there and brags about how they should know him. You know, I usually like leave them be. I don't, I don't want them to think I want something from them or anything like that. But what I realized was as a byproduct, like I think a lot of those people like start to see me as standoffish, like what a prick he is. But really it was just me not wanting to like infringe on their time. And I remember 
Robin really broke it down. And she said, did you ever think that maybe they wanted to meet you? And it didn't dawn on me. And then what I realized underneath that, it's a self-worth conversation, right? It's it's a self-worth conversation. Like, I'm not worthy of your time. I'm not worthy of you asking these types of questions, right? Where I think I have, like, sort of turned off some celebrities in that regard, where I was, like, kind of closed off and didn't, you know, engage with them because I didn't want to bother them. But uh, so I really don't have a lot of, like, my biggest celebrity friend is probably Phil Kessel, who plays now for the Vegas Golden Knights. Um, But I don't have a lot of those connections. Although just that, you know, conversation with her and working through it was really helpful to me because realized like sometimes this is the thing too, you know, part of another book about making assumptions about people. Like the assumption was I was being standoffish and like big time in them. When in fact right. it was really a case of me, like uh, having too much respect. Right. Yeah. So like, you know, if I saw Jay-Z at a basketball, I'm not going to go up to him. Phil Hellmuth, if I was him, he'd go up to Jay-Z and tell him how great he is. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I, I don't do that. I sit and wait. If Jay-Z came to me, I'd talk to him. You know what I mean? Go. But whatever. Yeah. Interesting. Fascinating answer. Thank you. Okay. Uh, Elsid86 wants to know, uh, who's your favorite poker opponent? Who's your least favorite poker opponent? Well, we just mentioned it. My favorite poker opponent is, uh, it's fun to play with Phil because like beating Phil is fun because he mm-hmm. like his, his tantrums are genuine and I thought, and I find them hilarious. You know, and I think like when it comes to like worst player to play with, I would say someone like a Martin Cabril or mm-hmm. you know, or anyone who's very, very slow, like even in shot clock tournaments, taking 30 seconds for every action, stuff like that. And just disruptive to the game. Like Martin is just annoying to play with because he doesn't shut up to like he's always talking. He's, mm-hmm. he's not talking in a fun loving way. He's just irritating people for the sake of doing it to throw them off their game. And so, you know, he would be one that I, I wouldn't want to play with. Fair take, fair take. Gutshot Gus is asking, we're all looking to have an edge any way that we can get it, like, for example, playing in position. Uh, someone like yourself has a famous name and by definition also always has a target on its back. Have you ever been in situations where you were aware of, you know, your spot, obviously, uh, but that that gave you an edge and you were able to exploit it? Yeah, but it goes both ways, right? So it's really on me to figure out who's who, but when I sit down at the table, sometimes I'm actually at a very big disadvantage because, you know, if I sit with three guys I've never played with before, they have a whole book on me of YouTube videos, like of, of just like a, a full library of catalog, knowing how I think and I play. And I don't know anything about them. Right. So it's going to take me time. And then you have people who, you know, say, for example, you know, the rec player, if you will, they they're they're built two ways. They're either built by I want to tell a story. I want to bluff Daniel Negreanu so I can tell my boys back home and I'm going to do something super crazy. And that can be hard to play against because you don't see it coming. You're like, he has what? Like, excuse me, eight, three, buddy. Right. You bet me under the gun with eight, three off and called on Jack King Jack seven. Like I didn't see eight, three in there. You know, I'm sorry. Um, so, you know, from that perspective, it can be difficult, but then you have the other side too, where there's some people who are just intimidated where they go the other way. They're like, they don't, they don't want to mess with me. So, you know, I can steal their blinds more more easily and things like that. But ultimately, it's on me to figure out who's who and also to figure out which version of me and my style of play these people have seen, right? Have they watched a lot of the high stakes poker? Do they get, you know, right. something from that? Have they watched the high rollers? Have they seen any, you know, like, what are they good? I think because I think self-awareness is the most important aspect of being a great poker player. So it's really important for me to understand how people perceive me. Sure. Okay. Uh, Jose Albert TV says, uh, wants to wants you to imagine, Daniel, that you've been granted a divine power over the world. 
What would you change? What should the world be more like, uh, according to Daniel DeGrande? So I sort of touched on it before, but I felt like, so these workshops I did, like I, I would, I would, I would instill emotional intelligence training mm. in, 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 uh, in like teenagers from 13 years old, 13 to 17, because kids actually absorb this stuff so much faster. If you do like these three day workshops where you sort of, you know, teach these kids, um, the importance of understanding that they're really teaching them, you know, through a method that that's tried and true that if someone calls you fat and ugly, it doesn't mean it's true. It's their, it's their opinion. It's not real. You get to choose your own opinion of yourself. You get to choose yourself as being someone who's confident, you know, inspiring, funny, whatever you choose for yourself, you get to choose that. Other people can say things, but like teaching children how, you know, to not let that affect them. And then just in general in the world, I really believe that there would be less conflict and less war when you could take people in a room for three days that are from different walks of life. You could talk like, you know, politically, like you said, far left, far right. Put them in a room together and they'll start to see that what what they share in the humanity and they'll see the see them as other people. I think we live in a social social media era that is never going to change that. Unfortunately, people are characters of each other now, yeah. right? They're, no, they're the devil. They're, they're demons. They're this. They're like, if you sat with this person and didn't know their political affiliation, you probably would have a great time and you would enjoy each other's company or whatever until you started to talk about the few things that you disagree on, right? So I would do more to, to start that process in schools a little bit earlier. Interesting. So ordinarily, I'd press pause, but I'm going to give you the opportunity to needle me a little bit. We are at the halfway point uh, or so. Are we good on time? Yep. Okay. Thank you very much. You can <laughs> needle me anytime you want. Um, and I will just say as well, having heard questions and the answers before they're 100% consistent with what they had been uh, a couple of days ago. <laughs> I wasn't lying. <laughs> Rob Hobson uh, asks, we have known since when we learned to play that math, bluffing, and luck combine to achieve victory. Daniel, can you break down percentage-wise how much math, bluffing, and luck you attribute to your own poker winnings? Yeah, no, it doesn't really work like that where you can factor it in percentages. But like math and bluffing are sort of tied together, right? Because it's the math itself that's going to dictate when you should be bluffing. And luck is something that I think people underestimate how brutal variance can be for you. You know, I've been pretty fortunate throughout my entire poker career. But the last two years uh, made me wonder, like, what is happening? You know what I mean? Like, you start to think some spooky thoughts. And then, you know, we looked at some simulations where, um, you know, you take, like, say, two people that are, say, dead even, evenly matched right? Like you and another guy are dead even match and you play heads up and you run 10 million hands. There will be streaks that where you like lose like 500 minds to a guy who's evenly skilled, which can make you go cuckoo a little bit, right? So um, I think the thing about variance or luck is to really, when as you get better and you get older, you, you gain more wisdom into understanding, okay, if you're losing, why? Is, are you losing because strategically you're making bad decisions? Or do you really know for sure, like you can, you can pinpoint, like you've actually been quite unlucky, right? And it's an incredibly valuable asset to have because the thing is, is if you, if you start losing, but you're actually playing well, like you might start making some changes and doing things differently and then start playing worse as a result and vice versa. You know, if you're winning and you're running great, you think you're the best thing ever, da, da, da. You think you can do all this funky stuff or whatever, you know, but you're actually, you know, not playing well, um, eventually your luck will turn. You know, and that's the thing. Like, it's very difficult, especially if you're a tournament player, 
to make a living because it requires a level of resilience unmatched in terms of cash games or anything like that. Like, think about it. You play a poker tournament, say you go to the casino, you play a poker, 99 or 95 to 99% of the time, you're going to lose all your chips, everything. You're going to lose all your chips every day. Sometimes you'll cash, you'll come second, you'll go first, but rarely will you actually get them all. So you leave every day with disappointment. Ah, wish I would have won that last time. Always a loser, right? Almost every day. And it requires a special kind of resilience to go through that on a daily basis and still come back, you know, bright eyed and optimistic the next day. Sure. And 85% of the time you'll leave completely empty handed, won't even cash. So that's for sure. Um, Mimo Mach uh, wants to know, uh, you didn't always have a beard, Daniel. Does leaving a beard go with your strategy of having a poker face during a tournament? So the beard is 100% me doing what I'm told. Okay. I have a lovely wife. She likes the beard. She loves the beard. So the beard stays. I get people on Twitter telling me, he's like, yeah, you need to shave that beard. So then I have to wave, right? I'm like, all right, random Twitter guy says I should shave the beard. My wife, who I love, wants me to keep the beard. I, I feel like the decision's pretty easy. And I don't mind it too. I mean, you know, it's pretty easy to like maintain. You just put a little beard oil in here, keep it nice and, and schnazzy. Um, but yeah, ultimately, listen, if your wife tells you to shave, Robbie, what do you do? You shave. Always, always. Uh, this question is not sponsored by any beard oil, but uh, out of curiosity, what brand do you use? She, it's so funny you mentioned this because she loves it so much. No joke. Last night in bed, she literally put her head like up near my beard because she says she loves the smell. And it's it's an expensive one, but she loves it. It's Tom Ford beard oil. Okay. More expensive than your standard beard oil, but she loves the smell. You know, it's very manly. There you go. <laughs> well, if my wife ever asked me to grow one, which she never will, but I'll know which brand to use now. Uh, Audrey7ho asks, do you believe that laughter is the best medicine and that humor brings light even in the darkest moments? I do. I really do. I remember, you know, growing up, like humor is exactly what bonded us and what connected mm -hmm. us, you know, and I'm really concerned. Let's say, for example, in the realm of comedy, you know, comedians tell jokes, the whole point of jokes at some point is to offend something, right? It's like jokes are kind of offensive. It's very, very difficult to write a one hour comedy set without actually offending somebody by telling a joke, right? Now you have two choices on how to, you know, receive those jokes, right. laugh or find reasons to poke holes in it and be offended. And I think that we're at it. Well, I think well, the pendulum will swing back to some sense of normalcy, but like, I've always been of that ilk. Like, you know, if me and Phil, I, we on the golf course, like if we were on the golf course and there was cameras and there was video, like we'd both be canceled for the things we say to each other. You know what I mean? Like, but we're doing it. We, we enjoy it. We like it. We're friends. You know, there's no harm there, but you know, people from afar would say, no, it's harmful. What you said to him and what he said to you, it's this and this. I'm like, but we're good with it. You know yeah. what I mean? Like it's similar to when I do accents, you know, anytime I see, you know, Israelis come up, I go, ah, oh, no, <laughs> my name, you know, and I speak like, like they do, they laugh, whether I do an Indian accent, whatever I do, the people I usually do it with, or, you know, like I connect with, enjoy it. Like we actually bond over it and they laugh and they're like, wow, that's pretty good or whatever. Where, you know, the only people that are bothered by it are not even involved. And they're generally speaking, like, you know, going to be like young white kids from Berkeley who are telling them that they should be offended on their behalf, but they're not, you know? Yep. Sure. Uh, you mentioned the golf course. That's a place where a lot of prop bets take place. Cracker wants to know what was your best prop bet, your worst prop bet, and the prop bet that you would still like to do 
most in the future. Okay, let's start with the worst prop that I made. This one had to do, this one was basketball. And I played basketball a decent amount. I was a teenager. I loved it. You know, loved playing. I thought I was decent at it. And I'm out here in Vegas and this guy who's like 6'1", he challenges me. And I say, all right, well, you're going to give me 11 up to 21. Okay. Because you're, you know, you're bigger than me. He gives it to me and I beat him, you know, pretty easily, actually. Um, and so I was like, okay, maybe I'm pretty good. Fast forward a couple months. David Oppenheim says, Huck C plays basketball. I'm like, all right, well, I'll do the same bet with you, Huck. You give me 11 points at 21. You uh, give me winners and losers outs. So if you score, I get the ball. If I score, I get the ball. Right. And we'll play to 21. Little did I know that Huck Seed's wingspan is like 30 feet. And he was going to guard me at the three point line and keep me in jail where I couldn't even move. And I'm, I'm, I'm not, I mean, the final score, you know, it was 11 0 to start, ended up being precisely 21 11, which means yes. I scored precisely zero points. Mm-hmm. In addition to that, not only, not only did I score zero points, I hit the rim a grand total of never. <laughs> I hit the backboard. I couldn't get a shot off. It was impossible. So that was a lesson in like, don't do that. Cause Huck Seed is an athletic freak. I remember seeing a man when he was in his thirties, he's in his thirties and he's running with the actual UNLV team in a practice. He was the best player on the court. He was, he was generally dominating, dunking on people, all that stuff. He's a freak athlete. So basically lesson is don't bet anything with Huck because you will lose. <laughs> you can do it all. Um, Probably the most fun and best profit I made was involving Phil Ivey, E-Dog, Eric Lindgren, another guy named Teddy. We were drinking after golf at a, at a, uh, like, you know, sushi joint or whatever. We're drinking some sake, whatever. And we joke and I'm terrible at golf. Like I can't break a hundred, I'm like 105 shooter. And that's from not even the back tees. So that we make a bet. I got one year to shoot 80 from the back tees at TPC Summer. I mean, whatever. So I'm drunk. I say yes. And the next morning I go, oops, I got $550,000 on this bet. That's a lot of money. I'm in Europe. I remember I had to go on a European tour that fall, so I couldn't golf or whatever. Long story short, I had six weeks left, and I hadn't done anything, hadn't practiced. So me and Christian, my golf guy, 7 a.m. on the golf course, practice for one hour, play 18 holes. Practice for another hour, hour and a half, play another 18 holes. Practice again, nine more holes, followed by in the dark, you know, hitting drives to try to get it on. So each day we go seven to eight, you know, like literally till sundown. We were there 12, more than 12 hours a day. I was practicing. Finally started to get into the eighties or whatever. And now we're getting close and uh, going into the last three holes of this round. I needed to go bogey, bogey, bogey. Okay. Okay. Which is reasonable. You know, yeah. and one of them was an easy hole. Actually the last four holes I needed to go bogey out. And the, the first of them was the easiest one. Right. So of course I double bogey. Yeah. Uh- I hit, a I hit two good shots. And then on the next next hole, I needed to make a par, which is really because I, I couldn't hit any greens. I don't hit it far enough. I couldn't hit greens. So it was always driver, three wood, chip and putt. And I'm very good at chipping and putting. So I, I leave myself like a 25-foot putt that's turning and whatever, and I make it. So now all I, I'm back on. I just got a bogey out. Okay. And now all of a sudden there's 50 or 60 carts following me. Uh-huh. Everyone knows like the bet is on, right? Oh, yeah. So the last two holes were almost identical. Okay. Perfect drive right up the middle. Good three wood, just short of the green. Okay. My chipping, which is my number one thing. I choked, I pulled it and left myself like a hundred foot two putt, which is very difficult. First one hit it six feet past the hole, made it. The last hole, last putt. I'm going to stand up and show you this because this is exactly what it looked like. Wow. I'm so nervous. I need this putt for all the money. I stand up, you know, normally you putt, you putt like this. 
I did this and almost, (laughs) and I fell down, but Uh snuck in on the right side and went in anyway. So I won that bet. And then I had to play Phil Ivy, uh, another 18 holes for big money because he was trying to get even. And I shot (laughs) one on that round and only lost one down because he Uh was trying to hustle me. He was trying to hustle me to get even. And uh, the prop bet that you would still like to make in the future. Oh, the prop bet I'd like to make in the future is one that Phil Helmy already agreed to, but backed out. Chicken. He's a chicken. Chicken, chicken. He bet me. He said, yes, we got video. I said, you can play 50 of the 25K plus at, at Aria Studio, right? If you win $1, if you profit $1, you win the bet, and I'll give you two to one odds. You can bet 200K, 400K, whatever you want. Mm-hmm. And I offered him this bet. He said he would do it. And then he chickened out, chickened out. And then, of course, instead, what he likes to do is brag about how he would have won the bet because he cashed in a tournament and this and that. I would have been like, buddy, you can't take credit for winning a bet you didn't make. That's right. Where your mouth is. Let's see. I'll happily give him that. Well, Phil is our number one fan here at the Cards Chat Podcast. So the challenge is still on if you want to accept it, Phil. Uh, T.E. Unit asks, Daniel, what are your thoughts on a player limping to another player who's sitting out in an online MTT. I would say that's probably dumb. I mean, what would be the reason for doing that? You get to win the money by a raise. I, mean, I guess if you had aces, theoretically, like you want the guy to get back, so maybe it makes sense, but not something that I would suggest. Is or advocate, advocate. sure. Uh, Ballo wants to know, what is the quickest way to, what is the quicker way to turn $10 into $1,000? Poker or sports betting? Well, no question, that's going to be sports betting, right? Because with poker, when you think about how you bet poker, like you have to double up and double up and double up so many times. I mean, with sports, you could theoretically like bet a dollar and take a team at like a thousand to one to do something or whatever. Like there's all often those long prop bet odds that you can hit. So and you can do these parlays, you know, the 10 teamers. You're probably going to go broke in both cases. But with sports, you have a much better chance of actually getting lucky. That's fair. Cool. Uh, Frederick wants to know, in your entire poker career, what do you consider consider to be your greatest failure and greatest success? I would say my biggest failure is World Series of Poker results, specifically. Mm -hmm. And people might be like, well, how is that possible? I'm like one of the top two or three in terms of money earned. Yeah, and cashes and everything. Cashes and all that kind of stuff. But in terms of bracelets, I've got like six bracelets and I have like something like 11 or 12 second place finishes. Something Mm -hmm. ridiculous like that. Had a lot of like weird things happen down to three-handed and, and, and beyond and not, you know, one. So six feels like a very low number. I started playing them in 1998. Um, feels like I should have at least 10 by now. So that's a disappointment in terms of results. But on the flip side, I would say that the uh, thing I'm most proud of probably is keeping up to date and yeah. standing the test of time, Right. Year in and year out, I've had I had one losing year. I might have a losing year this year, but the year is not over. I still have an opportunity to turn it around. Um, one losing year, and then one where I basically broke even. But other than that, you know, I've consistently been able to compete. You know, in the highest buy-in tournaments in the world, in a, ver- in a variety of games, and I've you know, you know, I, I'm never going to let the game uh, pass me by in that regard. I'm always willing to take a look and say, okay, what can I improve and try to get better. For sure. Uh, one more from me, uh, just, uh, you know, in the footsteps of that question, what do you consider now to be your greatest challenge, both on and off the felt? I would say my greatest challenge for on the felt uh, is actually 
caring enough to put in the amount of work required to make myself the best possible I could be, right? Because there's the balance issue. When you're in your early 20s, in your teens, in your 20s, all I want to do is play poker. That's it. Right. I love, it. you know, I'm absorbed by it. And I still love playing the game, but that was my life. There's no balance there. There was right. no time for relationship, for, you know, enjoying yourself and stuff like that. And part of the reason I worked so hard in my 20s was so that while at the time I was in my 30s and 40s, I don't have to. I can do right. so because I enjoy it. Now, the downfall of that is, you know, and there was a boxer who made this comment a while ago. Someone said, you know, was asking, was like, how do you stay motivated after having so much success? And he says, I'll be honest with you, those 4 a.m. runs are a little harder to do in silk pajamas. Right? <laughs> so, true, right? So, you know, people look at, like with poker, with poker specifically, it's an admirable to like make, be successful and still be good or still work, right? It's much easier to get there than it is to stay there long term because once you've, you know, tasted the success and you have right. financial security and stuff like that, then you don't really need any of that stuff. So that's probably the biggest challenge I face. Um, but I, it's, you know, I like, listen, I always find ways to self-motivate. Sure. Good stuff. Um, Crystal asks, how much responsibility do you believe well-known poker pros like yourself have to grow the game using the means at your disposal, whether it's via sponsorships or uh, you know, via social media or anything like that? Absolutely none. Genuinely speaking, mm. I do it because, you know, it's part of the life that I wanted to choose. But listen, you know, if that you just I think being authentic is more important than anything. And if authentically, you're just kind of a quiet person who just likes to play, make your money. Good for you. Do your thing. Having said that, you know, if you are going to be in the game long term, thinking about your reputation, how you contribute to the game is should matter. Like, for example, you know, if you play in a game where there's there's nine players at the table and the, and the live one quits. Right. And you all just get up and stop playing. You know, that's just, that's just a, it's like a plus EV. You you don't want to play in a bad game, but you know, what if you lose the player, right? Thinking Mm -hmm. short term is probably a mistake for a lot of people. And I think sometimes in poker, people, you know, do that a little too often. I remember playing online when I was grinding and learning, like these guys were so ridiculous. I would quit and they would all sit out. And then like two guys in the blinds would even say like, do you want to check it down? Because they don't want to give up like three cents in EV, you know, in one hand, right? They don't understand it's a give and take situation where, you know, so the guy, you know, the, the, the live one quits, play another 20 minutes. It's not going to kill you. It's just yep. not going to kill you. Don't disrespect the guy and wake him up to the fact that, you know, he's the meat, if you will. Right. So little things like that that you can do. But as far as like um, ambassadorships and all that kind of stuff, like you don't have a role. If you if you want to use that as a way to supplement your income and tournaments, then by all means, go for it. But the one thing that I would vehemently um, suggests, okay? And I'm afraid this generation's lost in this area, completely lost, authenticity. It's simple word, right? Be you. Don't try to be perfect. Don't have to try to be this Instagram thing where look at my life, everything's perfect while you go home crying and buy, you know, eating a bowl of ice cream, right? You know what I'm saying? Like, like it's okay. People relate and connect to you when you are vulnerable, when you're honest, when you show emotion, whatever the case may be, my wife and I, no joke, we played this game. We'd watch the poker go streams of the high rollers and we'd see, okay, Sean Winter and David Peters, right? I'd hide the bottom of the screen. Go, Who won? Tournament just ended last end. Who won? You can't tell because they're both like, you know, like I remember the story with Kelly Minkin. I remember when this really started to like stick out to me. Kelly Minkin was in the main event, biggest event ever, late, really deep. She wins this huge flip, 
like super key, stays alive, right? You know, you see people going in the stands in the old days, whatever. Right. She just went like this, yes, right? And then after that, she felt guilty and apologized and was like, I'm sorry, I didn't. And I'm like, no, 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 it's okay. Right. You don't, you don't, it, just because you celebrate doesn't mean you're also being rude to the other person, right? You know, you're, you're just expressing your own emotions. So in general, right. I think like, stop with trying to be perfect because you're not, you never will be. Um, and no matter what, you will either die a hero or live long enough to be the villain. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, Span or Monka uh, says, well, clearly, Daniel, you're a winner at poker, but what do you consider to be your greatest win off the felt and why? Well, that's an easy one. And that would be marrying Amanda, frankly, because we met when she first came on the scene. Um, around 2008, 2009, 2010, something like that. And, uh, you know, she was young and fun and I was like in love. Like we, when we were, she was host the big game, we were dating back then. And, uh, I bought a ring. Like I bought, I was ready, you know, I'm ready to marry this. She wasn't ready for all that. You know, she barely 21 and, you know, I was 31 or something like that. We we're in that neighborhood. And, uh, you know, the thing is I kept the ring, like we didn't work out. Cause you know, we broke up, but I kept the ring and I kept it in my safety deposit box, which probably wasn't ideal considering I was in another relationship after that. And they're like, well, what's that ring? <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? So thanks to actually Brett Hanks and Remco, when they were shooting Friday night lights, they said, why don't we bring Amanda on the show? You know, we sort of kept in touch. We kept an eye out for what each, each of us was doing different relationships and whatnot. And, uh, so she came back to shoot the show. We, uh, Hung out, we went to dinner, sort of had a date, if you will. We never really did dating before, but we went on a date, right. if you will. And she was really open, honest, and vulnerable with me in that uh, dinner. Like, so I saw a completely different side of her mm. that I didn't know existed. And that's surprising because I, you know, I thought I knew her really well. And it was really what bonded me closer to her. So fast forward a couple months, I popped the question, had the ring on New Year's Eve. And then a couple months later, you know, we were married and it's been blissful ever since. Like, I'll say this. I think for a lot of people, you know, like COVID when, you know, in the early stages when there was a lockdown, that was very close to when we just got married. Right. Okay. So I think for a lot of people, they said like, so you're going to spend all this time with just this one person. One of two things will happen. Right. You're either going to hate each other or you're going to become close. And mm. we work like clockwork with us. You know, we have a really good system where she loves her alone time. And so do I, which makes the time together even more enjoyable because we want to be together when we are. And none of us feels like it's a drag on our, you know, like you have to entertain the other party. Like I was in relationships before where, you know, I just want my alone time and they'd be like sitting next to me on the couch, you know, and mm. like, yeah. And then I'd be like, you know, my alone time's like, I'm leaving you. I'm letting you do what you want. But I'm like, but you're right thing. here. It's you're not the same right thing. Right <laughs> here. And I feel guilty because I'm watching hockey while I'm doing stats and all this kind of stuff. And it makes me feel like I need to change the channel so we can put on some freaking, you know, flowers and, Whatever, you know, Hallmark, you Hallmark, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I can certainly confirm, you know, I just got to meet Amanda for the first time a few days ago. I had a actually good, well, lovely 15, 20 minute conversation with her uh, as described. Uh, very cool. And I think I wrote to you, you know, lucky with wife, lucky in life. So that's a great, great, uh, great, great lady. Uh, Philip, Philip Peck uh, asked, can you get good at playing poker without reading any books? Yes. Books are not necessary anymore to play poker. And frankly, you know, like the best ways to learn now, first and foremost, is experience. Just play, right? You play, 
you write down the hands that you screwed up, you try to learn, you watch some videos. I have my YouTube channel. Of course, I have the master class, which will set you down the right path and stuff like that. There's also plenty of streamers who will share, like professional streamers who share their cards and you can get in the chat and ask questions and become part of like a little study group or whatever the case may be. But books themselves, I would say that, you know, they're, yeah, we've, 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 we've gone beyond that point. Like when I started in poker, there was the super system, you know, this big old, huge, dusty right. book in the seventies and whatnot. But today there's somewhat, you know, unnecessary. So, uh, VG Shah asks, poker changes a little every year. As you said, it's dynamic. New players come new pl and old players go. Do you think it's so easy for old school poker stars to play with the current crop of stars? How do you rate yourself in that regard? Say that one more time. So that's unbelievable. I, I because this exact question you asked also, I couldn't be worded it this time. That's oh, unbelievable. Wow. Okay. Um, VG Shah asks: Poker changes a little year. New players come, old players go. Do you think that it's so easy for old for old school poker stars to play with the current crop of stars? And how do you rate yourself in that regard? Okay, now I remember the question. Okay, so I remember when I was young and I first went to the World Series of Poker in that very first event, I remember sitting with guys like the Tom McAvoys and Brad Dowdy's of the time, and they were, you know, older and jaded a little bit about the game. And I remember, you know, I was a young gun, you know, and they were like, you could hear them, all oh, these kids today, they don't know what they're three betting and aggressive play. And I'm like, you know, I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, I'm better than you guys already, you know? I'm better than you now, but you're stuck in this idea that you've got everything figured out and you'll never get any better. And I remember in that moment saying, never be that guy. Never be that guy. Never take lightly what young, up-and-coming, hungry players are learning, doing. Right. And instead of taking your holier-than-thou approach about how you know everything and scoffing at it, like the Mattisos or the Helmuse, for example, instead of doing taking that approach, humble yourself enough to say, okay, well, what can I learn from them? You know, how can I learn to improve? How do I learn to adjust, right? Um, I've always believed that whenever you feel like you reached a point where you've mastered something and there's nothing left to learn, that is the exact point when others start to surpass you because you're stagnant and you're not growing, you're not learning. Like I think it was just recently, Mike Mattisall tweeted something about he did Fedor's quiz, 72 okay. quiz, and it's very, very difficult. And Mike got 10 out of 72. You know, oh, this is stupid. All you need to do is read your opponents, whatever. And Fedor just really, like responded, like, maybe you're just not that good. You know, oh, yeah, <laughs> probably oh. true, right? So, um, but anyway, so I've always had like a a deep respect for the younger generations and always used them, frankly. I hired a couple of coaches that were younger that understood how to use solvers and stuff like that. Stuff that was intimidating to me, didn't even know. And I remember the first lesson I was getting with them and 40 minutes in, I'm like, I, this is too difficult for me. But I, I hung with it, yeah. you know, I stuck with it. I learned and, uh, you know, opened myself up. But that's why I think you see, to some degree, from the golden era of 2004, you see very few of those people still av av able to play at the highest levels. The ones that do, like the Eric Seidel's, you know, again, the, I think the core principle that he shares is humility and self-awareness of saying, like, I'm not just, oh, I was the best, you know, in so now I'm still the best. Well, hold on. Time, things change, you know, and if you don't adapt and improve and grow, then you can complain and bitch all you want, but that's not going to do you any good. That's that whole victim mentality. I was talking about. Right. I'm just unlucky. Da, 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 da. How about they're better than you? Maybe, maybe it's possible. And it ties in also to what you said about, you know, 
that big achievement being standing the test of time. Well, that's what it takes. You know, that's certainly part of it. Uh, Haruri Sport of 88 uh, asks you, Daniel, how do you think poker will evolve in the future, specifically online? Well, I think online, most importantly, and I think Gigi's at the forefront of innovation when it comes to this stuff. It's always inventing and creating new formats, new fun ways to engage people. And sometimes those are going to be less skillful. Sometimes they're going to be, you know, different skill sets, whatever the case may be to keep the game fresh. Right. Um, because obviously anytime there's a game that's out there for a long time, you have a bunch of people who want to solve it, you know, and when a game gets solved, it becomes less fun to play. Right. Gives people uh, less of a chance to have, don't have access to the solves or whatever to, to succeed. So, you know, we've seen like uh, an influx of, you know, uh, formats like PKOs, bounty tournaments, and now these mystery bounty tournaments. Yeah. You know, these are great. This is like anybody who plays, you knock somebody out, you can win a million bucks. Like those are fun. So continuing to be innovative, um, I think is, you know, is, is, is a big key. Good stuff. Uh, Brickstow, I hope I pronounced that right, uh, says Canadians are such polite people. Unless they have a hockey stick or poker cards in their hands, then they'll pull your shirt off your head and punch you. Did you ever play hockey growing up? And are you just as dangerous on the ice as you are on the felt? I played every day after school right in front of my house. We set up two nets and we played street hockey with a tennis ball. And I had a stick that curved like this, which was illegal. And I don't know why I did it for so long. And they let me get away with it. But as far as skating goes, I didn't really skate much. I skated, I remember, one time in an ice hockey thing. And there was a guy who was actually like good named Brian Axel. And I couldn't skate that well. And I was on defense and I was flat-footed. And he just comes right up the middle and just bowled me over. So that was like the one and only time I played ice hockey. Um, it, was, it was a surreal moment being hit like that and having the wind knocked out of you. But, uh, but no, I love the sport. I just, I didn't play ice hockey, but, uh, you know, street hockey, roller hockey, floor hockey, all that stuff. Good stuff. And of course, uh, the hockey draft each year. Uh, Milia5 uh, asks, is it true that since the year 2000, you have never violated veganism? So, I, I mean, for the most part, I mean, I'm sure that, you know, in traveling and being in restaurants and stuff like that, some butter is probably seeped into one of my meals or like an egg or a milk in a, in a bread or whatever that wasn't fully vegan. And I'm fine with that. I'm not a Puritan to the point where I'm super militant about it. If I know something's not vegan, I won't eat it. Right. But otherwise, like, if, you know, if that were to happen, and I'm sure it has here and there, but I've never like openly said, oh, you know. Let me have some Kentucky Fried Chicken. Like that hasn't right. happened since about the year 2002, 2003. Right. Now I'm curious, you know, on that, there was a very famous uh, bet that was made against uh, Howard Letterer back in the day, who was also, I believe, vegetarian, said, I'll give you $10,000 to eat this cheeseburger and just went ahead and eat it. Um, not going to ask you, uh, you know, what, how much money would it take, but thoughts on that? How much money you got, Robbie? <laughs> And do Fair I have the whole cheeseburger? Do I have to eat the whole cheeseburger? See, that's the thing. Because, like, the thing is, if, if, if wow. you've been vegan for as long as I have, um, and the, this is science, it's not me. Like, but obviously, there's different bacteria and meat and stuff like that. If you don't have that gut bi biome, whatever, as being uh -huh. vegan, if I ate a big steak or a burger, I'll probably get pretty sick, right? Because my uh -huh. body, not, yeah, almost with certainty, like I would get pretty sick. So you have to factor that into the amount you're going to give me. It's got to be a decent. I did not expect that answer. I did not think that there would be a price tag. That's very 100K, interesting. 100K, man. What am I going to say? No to 100K to eat a little burger? What do you want from me? Yeah. 100K. You put 100K down on right now and you got it. Okay. You heard it here first. Do a freaking GoFundMe for your card shattered trousers and I'll do it on camera. 
Okay. Am I allowed to puke it out? That's the only question. We'll we'll have the terms and conditions with the, with yeah. your people. We'll we'll talk to Brian. Uh, Phoenix Wright asks, uh, "Power Hold'em Strategy was one of the first poker books I ever read. Great book, by the way. So I'd like to ask if poker solvers and GTO poker becoming more mainstream makes this book either outdated or perhaps more valuable in some way." That's a really good question because in some ways it is more valuable than others. As you said, it's not as up to date with a lot of modern. Uh, you know, philosophy. I would say that if you're playing at the highest levels or you're playing online and high buying tournaments or stuff like that, you're going to need to update your game and you're going to need to get on board with the solvers and stuff like that and understand game theory. However, for the vast majority of you watching this or listening to this, you know, that are playing in mid stakes or low stakes games, the principles in that book are the foundation, the foundation of the game theory approach we see today. Okay. For example, back then, what the principles of the book were like, I was raising smaller, min raising close to it. My bet sizing was smaller. Small ball was the approach. That's what we see a lot of today. In addition to that, the other key core concept was pot control, right? That's another mainstay in what you see in a lot of, you know, game theory principles. Obviously, the one thing about small ball is that it, it is an exploitative strategy. Okay. So if people know you're doing it, and employing the strategy, there is a counter strategy to it. Uh-huh. Okay, so you have to be cognizant. So back back when I was a small ball guru, if you will, you know the approach was simply this: jab, 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 jab. But keep my fist up so you can't knock me out. Raising a lot of pots, a lot of little this, little this. But then when I threw the punch, right? If I threw that big riverbed all in, guess what? I had the nuts, right? Pretty darn close. But I was still getting, because I played this aggressive style that people saw, oh, he's wild and crazy, but I really wasn't bluffing for big. I was making small little bluffs, but then when I put in the majority of my money, so what's the counter to that? Against Daniel Negron, three bet me more because I'm playing too many 6-4 suiteds, right? So that's one. And then number two is, you know, when I bet big on turn and rivers or whatever, fold, you know, make big laydowns and stuff like that. And because I'm, because I'm under bluffing, that allows you to overfold. Right. So here's the thing. The principles in the book, valuable. You can learn a lot from them. Right. Now, understand when people are on to you, they will counter with something. So then you have to recounter. Right. So now what do I do? Well, now that I know my opponent knows my small ball approach and when I bet big on the river, guess I always have it. Guess what? That opens up an opportunity now for me to bluff right. and get away with it. Right. Well, I promise I try to make it slightly different and a little bit more interesting. All that talk of jabs. Uh, I have another question. Uh, you love watching all those Rocky movies, one after the other, every single year. What is your favorite scene among uh, all the, uh, I think it's six or seven Rocky films? My favorite scene, it's a montage in Rocky Three, okay? And it sort of rings true to sort of what we've been talking about with the younger generation. And it's Rocky, he's the champ. He's doing commercials, taking pictures of people, wearing a suit and a tie, doing stuff for American Express. And then they would intersect that with Clubber Lang, sweating, Mr. T. He's grinding in the gym. He's getting bigger. He's getting stronger. Rocky's not. Rocky's complacent. He's involved in the sponsorships and this kind of stuff. He's not in the lab, if you will, right? Right. So I use that as sort of a, uh, that scene as a reminder, Mm. you know, that the young kids are the Clubber Lang, you know, and I'm the Rocky, but Rocky can't, well, you saw what happened to Rocky in that first fight. Wasn't yes. good. He <laughs> yeah. Pretty bad. He wasn't ready for it. So he was much more ready the second time. That's why you got to watch to the end of that great film. Uh, the Starfish asks, 
Uh, you wrote the chapter about Limit U7 Triple Draw in Super System 2. Were you confident at the time that you were one of the best in that game? And how about today? Would you consider yourself one of the best U7 Triple Draw players? Well, I thought I was pretty good at it, but that's because John Jawanda taught me everything that I knew. And John Jawanda was the absolute best at it, as far as I was concerned. He played the most of it. He was playing people heads up. He was crushing them at the commerce. He was building a bankroll. Mm -hmm. And he essentially taught me, because I remember he sat with me in a triple draw game. And I was, he's like, dude, you can't play three, four, five in all these bad hands. You know, don't leave home without a deuce. He gave me the basic principles. And then I sort of took, you know, most of what I learned and, you know, put it in the book. Um, and uh, yeah, so today, especially in tournaments, I do feel like I'd be one of the best. Like I'm, 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 I'm among the favorites to do well in, you know, in that format. For sure. Uh, Carmen Zoo says that you're the founder of the Big Swing annual charity tournament that was first held in 2009 at Harrah's Rio Seco Golf Club and asks what made it, what motivated you to choose golf over poker when it came to founding an annual charity tournament? Yeah, so this idea was brought to me by the Lily Claire Foundation, a guy who, you know, was running a, you know, a hospital here in town and, you know, he wanted to do a golf thing. And we, that, I think we only did that one or two years. I can't remember exactly. Mm -hmm. two. But what, what I did, you know, I, what I've learned from that, obviously, is that, you know, like when you compare poker and golf, like poker is so much more accessible to a wider audience. Like if yeah. you don't golf, like it's not fun. Like you can't hit the ball. You know what I mean? If you've never right. golfed, it's like you can't just go out there and play 18 holes. So poker, I mean, you get two cards, you get chips, you can always say all in, you know? And yeah. so... So right around 2013, it actually was part of when I was doing the workshop. One of my goals that I set was to create a you know celebrity poker event for the St. Jude Children's Hospital. And uh, we did. And we've raised millions of dollars for that charity in years. I've actually now handed over the, the chair role to Matt Stout with the charity yeah. series of poker. And he does a great job. He ran the event this year at the Red Rock. And it continues to be an annual thing. A lot of fun, as I said. And um, But yeah, the, the golf thing was sort of my first foray. And it was kind of on the smaller side, you know, little just get your feet wet kind of thing. Always good to give back, you know, whichever uh, method one chooses, though. Uh, Gravy 2011 says, school was boring for you. You often took a pillow to school and slept in class saying that you were bored. Why isn't poker boring? I think poker is a moving target. Poker never bores me because there's always something new and something fresh and something interesting and it's competitive, right? So I've always been very, very competitive. In school, there was nothing really to compete at. Like I didn't care that much about getting better grades than my friends or anything like that. Like I, I, I got the information. I just, I didn't enjoy it as much. Hey, honey. She's, she's doing, she just walked. She just, that, that, that door, that ring you heard, that was DoorDash. Ah, okay. <laughs> DoorDash, wasn't it? Okay, so she's having rice. Good for you. Enjoy. Healthy, healthy, um, vegan-approved dish. Yeah, so what the hell was I saying then? Oh, school, yeah. So school, I'll let it come back like, to you, right? Right. School was, you know, there was nothing really competitive about it for me. And I just, like, by, even at that time when I was in school, I started playing pool, which is where I started before poker. And so, um, yeah, I don't know. I just, I like, a lot of the topics I found boring. I mean, math was easy for me and just, yeah. Sure. Well, you mentioned pool. Our next question is from Marvin Sitton asks, are you still side hustling with billiards? Embarrassed to say there's a table right next to me that hasn't been dusted off since like even during COVID when I was like home, I, I haven't played at all. I haven't even picked up a cue. And it's funny because I might be better now. Who knows? Because I got LASIK where I got the monovision. Wow. This size distance, this size reading. But I don't even know how that would be depth perception wise. I'm going to do this after we're done. I'm going to go look and see if I can, you know, if I can there you go. It. 
Well, good luck. Uh, Zorro222 asks, besides yourself, who would you pick to be poker's biggest ambassador? So I remember early on meeting a kid named Jason Somerville, Jay Carver, run it up, you know, and he sort of took to this streaming thing on Twitch and sort of really did. Now he's considered like the godfather of Twitch because, you know, he was the OG. And, you know, I, I really liked his approach. He, he created a really nice following. People really enjoyed it. He was affable, friendly and yeah, stuff like yeah. that. You know, and today, I, I mean, there's there's a lot of different options for people. You know, I also enjoy Kevin Martin because I think that he uh, – Another good Again, when I talk about authenticity, like some of his videos, I watched one where he was really frustrated talking about, you know, the struggles he was going through. And I think that's relatable to people. I think that's most important is here's the thing. I think the best people for the job are the ones that care the least about what people think of them. That's sort of an oxymoron, you would think, right? Because mm, work, yeah. it seems like it would make sense, but like, because they're willing to be authentic. And they're willing to say what they actually believe rather than say what they think will ruffle the fewest amount of feathers, you know? And I think that's what, those are the types of characters or people who stand out. Like you look at a Phil Hellmuth or Mike Mattiso and they stand out, love them or hate them. You know, you get to choose, but you notice them, you know, and they're, you know, they're interesting. And I think, you know, today we have guys like Jungleman. Oh yeah, Macho, he's wearing the Macho Man gear. He comes in a Roman thing. He's like, you know, he's unique individuals. And I think in a sea of like homogeny, if you will, like mm-hmm. players all wearing, you know, hoodies and sweats and stuff like that. Anytime you see like a jungle man show up in a macho man, Randy Savage thing, that creates a little bit of levity, a little bit of fun, and a little bit more interest. That's good. I like it. Uh, speaking of creating interest, uh, Whiskers77 wants to know, what would be your ideas to attract specifically more women to poker? That's a difficult question. Obviously, it's a hot button issue. And I remember I tweeted not too long ago that... Since I've been playing in the late 90s till about now, the participation for women in tournaments is roughly between 5 and 8%. And it's been stagnant and it hasn't moved up and down regardless of what we've done. So I remember opening it up and asking people, like, what do you think the reason is? You know, and I asked a lot of different people. And one of the answers I got made a lot of sense is, you know, just general, like, you know, wealth gap or pay gap, whatever you want to call it. Like, you know, men have more money in general, right? Men have more free time, not raising children. And then there's also, you know, the theory of, you know, biological differences, which you're not allowed to say in 2022, but it's true. Like science is science, you know, like science has shown that you can tell there are differences in the male and female brain in terms of what their interests are. Like if you look at bricklaying, 99% of bricklayers are men, but we don't have the same sort of outcry to, you know, create equality in bricklaying. You know, you look at romance novels, something like 90% of them are sold to women, but I don't think they spend a lot of time worrying about, you know, um, you know, catering to men in that regard. So my view is more bigger scope in that if you increase the number of people who play, you will, as a byproduct, increase the number of women at the same rate. If it stays between five and 8%, just promoting poker in general, you're going to get about five or 8% participation. But again, if, 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 if you go from 1000 to 2000, that's double the amount of females in poker, right? Sure. I think a common thing here's the thing. The difficult thing is I've asked a lot of women about this and you know, like, what's your solution? What are your ideas? And some of them get to the point where it's like, okay, well, we need to create a more welcoming environment. Fair. Got it. Love it. Yeah. How, how and what do you mean? Okay. How and what do you mean? Right now we got to get into the specifics and this is where things get a little gray. Yeah. Well, women need to feel safe and comfortable. So mm-hmm. what's over the line? Obviously, if a guy is being belligerent, using sexist and saying things like, you know, I want to bang you or, you know, whatever. If he gets like to the nitty gritty, you should kick that guy out. Period. You know, yeah. but what if what if a player at the table just says, I love your hair like that? It's really beautiful. Mm. Really beautiful. Like if is that too far? 
like are so again so it's all it's a little perception based right so some people are going to experience that and say how dare you talk about my hair and sexualize me i'm like bro i just said i liked your hair right, right. so so the, the the question becomes a lot more complex in terms of like what exactly is a welcoming environment so society in general sexism exists everywhere it exists at the poker table i don't know that it exists any more or less it certainly doesn't in the higher buy-in tournaments, it doesn't exist as more, probably less overall. But I assume and I imagine I don't play them in the smaller limit games like one, three and stuff like that. It must be right. likely to be a lot more prevalent, you know, in smaller games like that. But as far as like an easy answer, I don't think there is one per se. I, I, I think it's like, uh, as I said, I've been in different companies who've thought about this problem and thought about different ways. And I don't think it's as simple as having a gift bag, you know with champagne and, and I don't think it's that simple. I do think again, and you could argue against this. I do think ladies events are valuable and important. I do think that part of, uh, freedom is like allowing women to congregate amongst themselves. Sure. Right. Absolutely. So let them play, you know, let them play. Like, you know, it's not a question of better or worse. It's just something, you know, where they may, you know, for a lot of women, I know that don't play in men events, they just play in women's events. They just feel more comfortable. And that's totally fine. Where then you have, you know, Jennifer Harmon. She doesn't feel comfortable in women's events. So she won't play. Them. She plays uh, right. won't play with men. But that's her choice, obviously. So, so yeah, I would look at the problem on a bigger scale and just making poker more interesting to a wider audience, including women. But I don't know if there's a red pill. I don't know that there's this magic thing. I don't know that, like, here's the thing. I, like I said, over 20 years I've been in the game. There's been a lot of theories, but nothing data-driven that says, all right, if we do X, we right, will achieve right. Y. You know, and this is the thing. This was frustrating, too, because I heard people talk about my position on this and they're so just just jaded. I had a back and forth with so many women on Twitter about this, asking them questions. I went to DMs and I was actually trying to engage with them and see if they had some cool ideas of maybe some promotions where they can get free rooms or different things like this. One of the ideas I heard, for example, it's like and this was, you know, in response to Doug Polk is like to have a daycare center in a casino. I'm like, come on, bro. Like some of these ideas were just not like, like that's not going to happen. Okay. So here's the thing too. If you're a company, I know we're talking about this for a little longer than we did last time. If you're a company who's selling a product, right. And you have a marketing budget or whatever, you're not going to spend so much money in a spot that isn't reaping you any benefits. Or Correct. You got to pay attention to ROI. Right. So you're looking at ROI and you're saying, okay, well, listen, 90% of our you know, clientele or customer base or male, right? So how much resources should we spend to try to increase the number of women, you know, and use that money rather than 90%? And that's a difficult question. But again, when it comes down to like, you know, to, to the to the bottom line, like what 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 CEO of a company who did that wouldn't get fired if he spent, you know, far too sure. much on the minority of of uh you know like group of customers versus the majority. So again, Fair Very points. complex question, and I'm happy to discuss that. I don't care. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. Like anything, you can all say what I say. Biological, they're both saying all oh, male brain. Deep. Here's the thing I read. And this is so true. <laughs> Men and women don't have to be the same to be treated equally. Mm. Men and women do not have to be considered the same in order to receive equal treatment. We are different. Men and women go through different things. Here's the fact, okay? Every 30 days, Robbie, women do things that you don't do, okay? 
and it causes hormonal imbalances and it changes, you know, chemistry and it, you know, it affects a lot of different things. You don't have to deal with that. So you can't relate to that. How it right. feels. And neither can I. No. Right. <laughs> and it's something that's just different and that's okay. There's right. nothing wrong with it. Nothing wrong. It's not sexist to acknowledge that we're different. It's sexist to treat us different, you know, based exactly. on whatever else. Anyway. Exactly. anyway. <laughs> that's a good one. That's a good one. Uh, very nuanced answer. Uh, WTWD Steepa asks, at what stage in your poker career did you start to feel confident at the table? And how long did it take for you specifically not to feel threatened or intimidated by opponents and keep everything, uh, what do you always say? Uh, tranquilo. Tranquilo, yeah. yeah. Um, I remember like, so obviously, as I said, I was a big fish in Toronto. I felt like I had it all figured out. And then I got my I got humbled leg between uh, tail between my legs, walking home to the budget suites Had those moments. But I remember it was actually again in that 1998 world series of poker event where my first yep. table was the table of death. Yep. Eric Seidel, Dan Harrington, Johnny Chan, men, the master win, Umberto Brennis. I mean, murderers row back then, right? It was like the toughest and I'm sitting there, you know, early on on a queen nine, eight board, check, check, flop, turn an eight. I have six, seven. I check raise Johnny Chan with seven high. Looks at me, folds his hand. Got one. Another hand, I got pocket jacks. Raise the button against Eric Seidel. Comes queen high. Check, check. Turn, he bombs big. River, he bombs big. I call it off with the jacks. He shows ace jack. I'm like, all right. You know, all right. I can compete with these guys. I feel like I'm in, in the ring now. You know what I mean? They're not perfect. They bleed, as Rocky said to Drago. You know, he bleeds. And it was the first moment where I finally felt like, okay, you know, they can't see through me. As, as I was probably intimidated or afraid of before. Sure. I have to say, I am just blown away. It's one thing, again, I have to reflect on this. It's one thing, you know, to remember a hand, you know, and obviously poker players, professionals are notorious for remembering the details of hand. But, you know, you're not, I'm the one reading from a script of all of these questions. And you may have heard these questions before, but I am promising you, and everyone who's listening or watching, literally, word for word, it's not just a, obviously he feels the same way, but it's like the same examples. The same, it's uncanny. It's unbelievable. Um, Scoopy Edu, how to main, how do you maintain your high level of play without letting the media hype affect your mental side or decision making? So the media side, as I sort of mentioned earlier, ever since I was a very young guy, I was very comfortable on camera. I wanted to be an actor. I liked being on camera, and I think it gave me an innate advantage. So that sort of media side stuff like benefits me for the most part. Having said that, understanding like how much uh, energy and, uh, you know, that takes away from me when I'm at the table and stuff like that. Like what people probably don't know about me is that I am an introvert. I'm a homebody, just like my lovely wife, Amanda. We don't like so a lot of people get confused on what introvert and extrovert mean. Right. Per se. And I'm what's specifically known as a talkative introvert. OK, mm -hmm. so introvert doesn't mean that like you're socially awkward or that you're shy or anything like that. It essentially, it's essentially where do you charge your batteries, right? Some people get charged up when they're out, you know, and they get, they gain energy from that. For me, it right. depletes me. If I go to a dinner with a bunch of people and I'm, you know, I'm talking or whatever, I get home and I'm like, oh, so spent. After this, talking to you, this freaking for how many hours we know what we're going to do. Hopefully this one has audio. Bro, <laughs> you get two strikes. That's it. No strike three. Yes. Um, <laughs> but like, you know, I'll be tired after this. Like I, I get physically yes. from that. So that's why I, I you know, um, I do try to, you know, limit to almost nothing, any sort of media obligations or engagements while I'm playing poker tournaments. 
Yeah. Like I'll tell people I'll do it before or after, but I like on my dinner break, I know people like often ESPN's like, Hey, can we get interviews? I'm like, not a good time. I need to rest. Okay. That's fair. Cool. Uh, Supernova asks, can you compare and contrast the explosion in current poker content compared to what we had back in the boom days? What, when was it more entertaining? When was it better both for creators and consumers? Well, I mean, I think it's obviously far better now. I remember when we started doing stuff, you know, I had a YouTube channel, like the very first video I did was like, what would be a story today on Instagram? Mm-hmm. It was like my right, dog, right. you know, it was like a six second clip. I put that on YouTube, you know, and then we had, uh, you know, this guy come out and do like diaries, we called them world series book of diaries, which was like a little version of the blog from many years ago. And they brought right. this big, huge, chunky camera, you know, meanwhile today on this little cell phone, I filmed the entirety of a 30 minute blog. That's a daily right. show, right? So the accessibility, you know, everybody has a phone, people so much more, you know, comfortable with social media, with also doing, um, well, Patty's here, um, so, you know, with social media and, you know, like different stream options and things like that. I think there's uh-huh. so much content. And the great news about it today is you're not limited to what you, you know, really like you have your choices. You don't like somebody's stuff, big deal. Move on to the next. One. There's so much variety, so many different approaches. You have some that are very analytical some more entertainment based. I think we're in a great place when it comes to content, because again, you know, there's just such a wide variety. For sure. Um, Matt Burns, 88 asks, if you could take one aspect of one other player's game to improve on your own, what would it be and why? Yeah, no question. John Juwan does ability to sense weakness before the flop. So John Juwan made a living just being able to notice that when you raise in the cutoff, whether you're strong or whether you're steam. And he would just be in the big blind with 8-4 offsuit, and he would just be like, ah, uh, you're not calling, all in. <laughs> when I do that, when I do that, I'm like, oh, okay, I got a pre-flop read or whatever. Like, I move in, and, you know, they have aces. Because it was like the wrong, it was right. the exact opposite read. I'm like, oh, something fishy here. Something looks fishy. Okay, I'm going to raise this guy. Yeah, it's fishy because he has aces. That's that's what was fishy. <laughs> uh, it's twice uh, mentions of John Juanda. So maybe we got to find a way to get him on the podcast also. See, what does he think that he taught you as well? Um, Magic Huzz wants to know, what has poker given you and what has poker taken from you? I can't really think of anything that poker has taken away from me because it allowed me the freedoms to live the like the life I always wanted to. You know, when I was a teenager, my life was you know pretty simple. I loved sports, I loved fantasy, love betting, like different things like that. And, you know, I get to live um, a life right now where I don't have to do anything, you know, right. thanks to poker. I can choose when I play. I can, you know, choose to do what I want. You know, there's no real barriers in my life. And I owe that all really to finding poker and, you know, being able to get financially stable from that. Good stuff. Um, Mush the Bush is asking, poker's your job, sure, but what else do you do for fun that you enjoy, and how has that shifted over the years? Um, What do we do for fun? So for fun, like, I mean, this is going to sound goofy to people, but I've been in the same fantasy hockey league since 1996, and I can't explain to you how much joy this brings me. Same group of guys, basically. I spend, in August, I spend thousands, like, I spend eight hours a day every day studying prospects and different kinds of things. We just had our draft which is my favorite day of the year, uh, brings me back to my childhood. And it's something that I follow throughout the entire season. So I love doing that. My wife and I, we both are TV buffs. We love watching shows together, you know, at night. Obviously, golf hasn't been something I've been doing a lot lately. Um, or really doing anything social, you know, is rare. But going to hockey games, things like that. Yeah, we're pretty uh, pretty easy, pretty pretty simple people. I mean, it doesn't seem that way. You're like, oh, you must 
you must go to these fabulous. And no, mostly at home and I'm, you know, in a t-shirt and shorts. Sometimes you don't need so much to, to be happy. I like that. That's good. Uh, and our final question, Chica Bonita, <clears throat> excuse me. Chica Bonita wants to know, please tell us about your inner values and moral principles that you adhere to in life. What's really important to you in family in people and in your relationships? It's a very, very good question. Um, I think my parents instilled in me just the value of being a good host and being generous and always like, so when I do stuff with people, like I take the worst of it knowingly and willingly, because I would rather do that than feel like I'm taking advantage of someone. So for example, if, you know, if you work for me and you think you should make a thousand dollars a week, you're probably going to get 1500 from me because I would rather you feel like you need to do more to live up to what you're getting rather than feel like you're not getting paid enough. Right. Like I would rather you feel as though if I asked you to do something as a, you know, extra right. that you willingly do that and happily do that. And that's kind of how I set up my entire life with all the people in my life. And that comes from like a generous spirit from my parents. You know, my parents were the ones who you come to the house. My mother would feed you regardless of whether or not you wanted food. Like you, you know, cause people, they're nice. They're, oh no. You mommy, my mom would say, hey, are you hungry? You want something to eat? People would, no, no, no. I'm good. Thanks. She doesn't hear. No, it doesn't compute. Right. The word doesn't work. She puts a whole bunch of stuff and guess what? People eat. My dad makes sure your drink is filled, you know, and it's always about being generous in that regard and like never being, a, never being a nit or a schwindler. Like I can't relate. I just can't relate to people who have a lot of money, especially people that are really rich who haggle over like $17, not 19. I'm like, what's the difference to you? You have like a hundred million bucks. What do you care about this stuff? for? Why? It's like, it's a weird thing. And again, they have their own reasons for it. But for me, I can't relate. I joke about it with Timex. And he actually gave me a good explanation as to why he does. Because I know he's wealthy. And he would talk, oh, you got to leave $8.14 tip. I'm like, buddy, just leave a 20. You know, leave 100. You can afford it. Yeah. No, no, whatever. But, you know, he had he gave me actually a reasonable response. He said he wants to make sure that he I, – I, I couldn't live like he does. But he wants to, you know, build up as much money as possible so that he can do good in the world. Good for okay. him. You know, I appreciate okay. it. I appreciate that reasoning, but a lot of people, that's not their reasoning. They're, they're just cheap and they want to like, instead of a 200 foot yacht, they need the 250. So because right. Joe over there, he got a 220. So I got to get the bigger one. Right. And that's all about, you know, For which sure. is another side topic. I just want to real quickly, like it's, it's a little your bit time. Of, it's take as long as you want. A little bit of a Buddhist concept, but like, imagine, you know, this is how the human mind works, right? Imagine you, Robbie, you work in a company and you get the, job of your dreams and they're paying you more than you could have ever imagined. It's ecstatic, right? Life is good. Yeah. Yeah. The very next week, somebody less qualified than you gets a better position for more pay. All of a sudden you go from ecstatic, super happy with your position to saying, wait a minute, why is that person getting more than me when I'm more qualified? Maybe not you, Robbie. Not me. <laughs> not you, but you understand what I'm saying. Yeah. It's a common human emotion, you know, where, yeah. where people you know, have this uh, comparison issue, which again, like I said, is a little bit of a Buddhist concept where sure. comparing isn't, isn't healthy. Um, That's fair. Um, well, you've now heard all of the questions twice. I'm wondering if there's any one of them that resonated with you as one of, if not the best, that we could pick a winner perhaps uh, for $100 uh, from the Cards Jack community. Don't say the name, but just the question specifically that uh, really hit you best. I think we finished strong with the question about my morals, my values that come from my family and my parents and stuff like that, because it really does encompass like, because people's like, how do you become who you are? 
And it's a lot of the time a byproduct of your upbringing. So I thought that was a really good question because it makes me think deeply about, you know, how blessed I was to have two parents who loved me very much, mm. who raised me in, you know, a normal European style household. Like I didn't yeah. struggle for food. I didn't struggle for anything. And they taught me good values and good morals. And I think that that's what shaped me to be who I am. And I like who I am, you know, take yep. it or leave it. This is me yep. authentic. And sometimes you're not going to like it. Sometimes I get mad and I throw selfie sticks. <laughs> <laughs> that is, that is fair. Well, congratulations to Tika Bonita, winner of a hundred dollars. We will be in contact with you. And folks, uh, we did say it at the outset, but I wrote it. So damn it, I'm going to read this at the end. Daniel always preaches the importance of integrity. And I do want to take a moment to share with you again. You know, Daniel did invite me. It's a lovely home. Love the smell of citrus, uh, whatever the, the maze. You can't see that through the camera. But it's a massive dog smell. teeth smell. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but, you know, again, as alluded to numerous times, we had already recorded this entire interview in its entirety um unfortunately the goof was mine i gotta own it i gotta you know first time in 100 episodes it will never happen again we have the video there is proof uh but no sound so um i do want to also just publicly apologize but um far more importantly i just again you know everything you spoke to i need to thank you for just being so ridiculously generous with your time and doing it all over and frankly just really getting me out of a very big jam i appreciate it um, well, thank you to everyone who sent in questions for Daniel. Just a uh, don't really press my... delete. Be careful. Make sure you don't delete this. No, no. <laughs> don't don't press it. delete. But if a pop up comes up and says, "Do you want to restart your computer?" No, say no. no don't do it. That's it. Oh my goodness. Okay. Well, you're going to be authentic, Robbie, as well. Um, thanks to everyone who sent in your questions, and a friendly reminder to all of you: please do submit your questions for future podcast guests in the dedicated thread on the forums. Please give us a great review, not just a good review. I want to keep my job and spread the word via your social media channels if you like the show. And again, thank you, Daniel. Thank you all for tuning in to this very special episode of the Cards Chat Podcast. I'm Robbie Straczynski. You can follow me on Twitter at Card Player Life. I wish you all a very wonderful day. Cards Chat, the friendliest poker podcast in town from the world's number one poker community. 